Uh, pick up your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to that portion of Scripture we read a moment or two ago. So that's James chapter 5, and uh, from verse 13 to 20. So a couple of Sundays ago, in our sermon on James, we looked at the beginning of the end. Didn't we? We looked at oaths and swearing, and we saw that in in that section of scripture, that James was beginning the conclusion to this wonderful, this glorious letter that he's he's written. Verse 12 sort of initiated the beginning of the end. Okay, well this evening, the plan's really quite a simple one. Hopefully tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to complete the conclusion So tonight, we are going to finish our study in the book of James. And as we do that, what we're considering are his last words of love to the church. And there are this evening uh, three aspects of this conclusion that we're going to think about and look at in a wee bit more detail. Three aspects. And what I'll do is I'll set those out just now. So three aspects. We'll consider point one, the correct responses. Then point two, we'll look at some connected requirements. And then point three, provided we we have time. Uh, Point three, a careful return. So I'll give you those again. Correct responses, connected requirements, and a careful return. Okay? So without any sort of undue delay, let's let's get into this. Let's have have a look at the first of those. And that was the correct responses. Okay? The correct responses. So... What James does in the first part of this letter is he goes through different situations of life. So he tackles the highs of life and the lows of life and he illustrates how it is that Christians should respond to these sorts of things. What he does is he highlights, do you see it? He highlights three different life circumstances here and he deals with them. So it won't surprise you to hear that that's what we'll do. We'll follow what James does here, and we'll look at, in this first point, we'll look at responses to three different life situations. The first one is in verse 13. Because there James deals with the correct response to suffering. The correct response to suffering, you see it? He asks a question, and then he follows it up. He says, is any one of you in trouble? Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. He should pray. Now, to be honest, I don't think that we really need to camp out here for very long. I don't think that we need to dwell on this first one for too long because this is something that we have already 
dealt with extensively. Because when James is talking about trouble here, it's really a kind of return to chapter 1, isn't it? It's a return to that, that talk about trials and hardships that we saw in chapter 1. So perhaps the only thing, the only point that I would underline here is just that, to emphasize how realistic the Bible is. Isn't it? The Bible is a a realistic book. What, what, what do I mean by that? Well, you know, flowery preachers, or maybe more uh, dynamic preachers, they might sort of shout from the pulpit, people, come at Jesus Christ, come at Christ and see your life. It will be You come to Jesus Christ and everything is going to be smooth. Everything is going to be rosy. Everything is going to be fantastic and sorted out. But you know what? The Bible doesn't say that, does it? The Bible is a realistic book throughout James, throughout the whole of Scripture. We see very clearly the reality of hardship we see the reality of what James calls trouble here for the Christian you see the way of salvation is also the way of suffering and so James calls for what? he calls for greater dedication and greater frequency in prayer are you in trouble? Okay, second life circumstance that James mentioned here is kind of the sort of polar opposite, isn't it? It's at the other end of the spectrum. Because perhaps quite surprisingly, what he does is he moves from trouble, or does he go next? He goes to joy. The correct response to joy. Because he says, verse 13, Again, is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Now, would would you not agree that that, in some ways, is, is perhaps the more challenging instruction for us, isn't it? You see, we're Christians, we're believers... So, surely, when things go wrong, surely when, you know, the bottom drops out of our lives and plans, they break apart, then surely, because we're Christians, what we do is hit the floor. You know, we, we fall to our knees and we, we call out in, in, in prayer to God. That's a, a, a natural thing for us to do as Christians. But could we really say the same when things are going well? Could we? You know, when things are working out positively for us, when, when joy and delight enters our lives, yeah, we want to share that. 
that very often we want to share that with our friends and we want to text and email and phone our family and share the good news and share the joy with them. But do we instantly and naturally take those things to our God? And do you see what James calls for here? Because it isn't prayer as such, I don't suppose, is it? Because it's song. It's singing. You know, this is when we get a new job. This is when we get a clean bill of health or our plans work out or we pass our exams. This is us lifting up our voices in song and praising the name of God in thanksgiving. Now, do we do that outside of church? At home, do we lift up our voices and praise the name of Jesus Christ? Well, James says we should, because it is the correct response to joy. Okay, so trouble, joy. Sadly, James deals with the correct response to illness. The correct response to illness. And really, this is James's emphasis here. This is where his focus lies. So accordingly, I want us to give very careful attention to what he says here. So what does he say? Well, I think in some ways it is really quite a sort of unusual scene that he gives us in in chapter 5, isn't it? He says that in times of serious illness, the person in the congregation should call not on the minister or on a person that they think has got some sort of special healing powers but that they should call on the group of elders and that these men should come and pray but also what else should they do? It says they should anoint that person with oil. Now that whole thing, that whole scene that James paints, it kind of raises quite a few questions in our minds, doesn't it? But surely the obvious question we've got to ask is what on earth is this anointing with oil all about? What is this about, this anointing with oil? Well, it's clearly not a mid just a purely medicinal act, is it? You know, we've got to give the biblical author a wee bit more credit than that. You know, it's not like James thinks that if we open a a tub of olive oil and we pour it on somebody's head that this is going to be a cure for all illnesses and and all ailments. I mean, it's, it's not about that. No, there's a spiritual significance here. In fact, I think it's it's similar to that episode that we looked at quite a few months ago in John's Gospel. Do you remember that? When, when, when Jesus spat on the ground and he made mud and he healed the man who was 
born blind. Do you remember we looked at that? Well, just as in that miracle, the saliva and the mud were used to point to the healing power of Jesus. So here, in this anointing, the oil is used, and it's used for two things, I think. It's used, firstly, to set aside the person for special attention from God. But it's also used, just like the mud was used, it's used to point to the miraculous, the incredible healing power that is available from on high. There's a, there's a, there's a very spiritual, deep spiritual significance to this anointing with oil. But in saying that, I would, I would like to underline something tonight. I would like to caution against carrying, getting carried away by this. By getting carried away by this idea of anointing with oil. You know, I know it's in scripture. I get it. It is important. But did you notice when we read through it, it wasn't where the power lies, was it? You see, instead James highlights two other things. What he does is he repeats, he mentions and then repeats that it is the Lord who acts in situations like that. And then he says that it's not anointing, but it's prayer. It's prayer that ultimately leads to the healing. Do you see what he says in verse 15? He says, the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. And that's exactly what is envisaged here. You know, this sick person that's anointed, the sick person that's prayed for, they're made well. They're made well physically, but also if the illness is caused by a specific sin, the person will be made well spiritually too. Now, of course... Of course, that doesn't mean, and this has done a lot of damage, this doesn't mean, we misinterpret this so often, this does not mean that every time a prayer is offered in faith, that the person involved is to be healed. Of course it doesn't mean that. Otherwise, Faithful people would simply never die, would they? But it does mean that if it's in God's plan for the restoration of that person, then he will use these means that we've got here. That God will use the means of anointing. He will use the means of prayer to accomplish that. Now, I reckon that if we wanted to, and because of the sort of practical nature of what James is talking about here, that if we wanted to, that we could probably spend the next, uh, I don't know, four to six weeks sitting in here talking about how to apply this or how to, to unpack it. But let's not do that. 
Instead, let's just make sure that we take one thing away from this. Okay, let's take one very crucial, very key point away from this. You see, folks, what James desires from us is that in the events of this coming week, that no matter what happens to you, you instantly take that to God. Now, will you remember that for the next seven days? That no matter what happens, if something terrible happens, seek God. If something joyous and amazing and delightful happens in your life this week, take it to God. If illness comes, if suffering comes, then instantly take it to your Father who loves you. And Ephesians 6.19, pray in the Spirit on all occasions. Why? Because that is the correct response to what life has to throw at us. The correct response. Okay. Let's consider then some connected requirements. Okay, some connected requirements. We've seen correct responses. Now, what about connected requirements? Now, I was then... What was it? Probably a couple of weeks ago, I was speaking to a a, a fellow pastor, a minister from elsewhere. Good guy, nice guy, and uh, having a good chat. And, and he was he was telling me about his preaching, and he was saying that he felt that in his preaching over the last week, while that it hadn't been um, it hadn't been practical enough. That's what he was saying. He just felt that there hadn't been enough sort of tangible, practical application in his preaching. And he said, just as a throwaway comment, passing comment. That what he intended to do was preach his way through the book of James because of that. And that is part of the reason, surely, why we love this letter, don't we? You know, it's, it's truth, and it's beautiful truth. But James also takes that truth and he applies it so readily, doesn't he? And we've just seen him do that with these sort of correct responses to the ups and downs of life. But now what does he do? Now he kind of builds on that even, even more. In fact, he doesn't building it, he widens out his practical application. You see, he's been talking about the elders of the church, but now in verse 16, he widens that out. And what he does is he provides two practical instructions for everyone. He provides two practical instructions for everyone in the congregation. So what are they? Let's have, a, let's have a wee look at those. The first one is we're told here, do you see it? Verse 16. It's a strange one, isn't it? We're told to confess our sin to each other. We're told to confess our sin to each other, and it is a strange one. And really, since it's the only instance in the New Testament that we hear anything like this, 
then it's actually quite easy for us to, to misunderstand what James is telling us to do here, I think. So let's think about, first of all, what it doesn't mean. You know, confessing our sin to each other. It doesn't mean uh, that our private sin should necessarily be made public. So be pleased to know that it doesn't mean that for the, the, the private sin of your heart, that Sunday by Sunday uh, we'll be expecting you to come up the front here and have the microphone and announce your private sin and confess it to the congregation. That is not what James means. No, instead, surely what he's got in mind here is, is more of a, a readiness to speak openly to each other in the congregation. A readiness, I think, to, to ask for forgiveness from those that we have offended by our, our, our sin. And I think on top of that, almost certainly, given the context of what's going on here, what we're talking about is confessing our sin in an instance where illness or sickness or disease has been caused by our sin. Because look what he says in verse 16. Look how he ends it. He says, therefore confess your sin to each other so that you might be healed. Now, I, I, I used to think that this sort of instruction here that James has given, you know, confess your sin to each other, I used to think that this was a particularly hard thing for Scots to deal with. A particularly hard thing maybe for, for, for British people to come to terms with. I used to think that, you know, that there's a, a reluctance... Yeah, reluctance to be sort of spiritually open with each other because of our supposedly naturally reserved natures. I used to think that, but that's not the case, is it? You know, our spiritual guardness is often less to do with sort of nationalistic traits than it is to do with just the wickedness of our hearts and the sin of our hearts. Friends, we should be quicker to address the wrongs that we do. And when it is appropriate, we should also be quicker to confess those sins to each other. Okay, so that's the, the first of these things. The, the, the second instruction, we said there was two instructions for the congregation. The second one's right beside it. Because we're told, aren't we, to pray for each other. In fact, we're not. I'll change that, I'll rephrase it. We're not told to do that. We are commanded to pray for each other. You see, James doesn't just expect the elders or the, the church leadership to pray for the weak and for the ill. James expects you to do it. He expects every single one of us in here to pray for each other. And look what he does to encourage us, to motivate us. 
he provides an example of the power of prayer, doesn't he? He talks about Elijah in verses 17 and 18. He sends us all the way back to the Old Testament. He sends us back to, to 1 Kings 17 and 18 to where Elijah prayed. He caused a drought to come in the land as a way of punishment of, of King Ahab. Now, why is James doing that? What do you think? Why... Why is James giving us Elijah here? Why should he motivate you and I to pray for each other? Why Elijah? Well, do you see at the start of verse 17? He gives us the answer. Have a look. Because Elijah was a man just like. You see, Elijah's prayers that James is referring to here is prayers that caused the weather to change. In fact, they caused the weather to change twice. Those weren't something out of the ordinary. Those were the prayers of a believer just like you and just like me. You know, we are to pray for the sick. We are to pray for people in our congregation. Why? Because our prayers, your prayers too, are powerful and effective. Now, tonight, can I ask you, what does your prayer life sound like at the moment? You know, if we were to hear the prayers that you offered yesterday or the prayers that you offered today, I hope, what would they sound like? Are they too self-orientated? Are they? Are they perhaps even too self-centered? Well, look what we've got here. We have got a biblical command to pray but we've got a pickle command to pray for each other. So I would urge you tonight to do that and to do that much more often. To pray for the people of your church. You know? Pray for the people that sit next to you or near you. Pray this week for the people that you know in the congregation. But also pray for those that you don't know so well. Let's confess our sin. But let's make sure that we pray for each other. Okay, what, what we've seen so far this evening, we've seen these correct responses to the ups and downs of life, the three responses. Then we've seen these two sort of connected requirements that we've got to confess our sin and to pray for each other. Now, we're just going to end with a word on this third thing. Remember what it was? It was a careful return a careful return now I guess in some ways there's kind of legitimate grounds here for treating the last two verses of the letter of James in a separate sermon 
legitimate grounds to do that. And do you see why? Look, look at how verse 19 begins. We've talked about this a lot over the last couple of months. It begins with the words, my brothers. Okay? So it begins with James's usual way of starting a new section. So legitimate grounds for a new sermon, if you like. But you see, these verses here, these last two verses, are absolutely integrally connected to what we've just been talking about. What have we just been talking about? We've looked at physical healing, haven't we? And then he closes the letter by flicking the coin over. And now he talks about spiritual restoration. He ends by talking about spiritual healing. So what does he say? Well, I don't know if you like like this term or not. I think we've talked about this before. And some people hate this term. One of my old ministers went on about this term, I'm just about to say, and he hates it, you know. He, it just it makes him shudder. He says it's just old school. And it is an old-fashioned term. But what James has got in view here is backsliding. He's got in view the backslidden believer. And and whether we like the term or not, I presume that everyone in here just now knows what is meant by a backslider. I mean, somebody who did profess faith, somebody who, 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 who grasped the gospel, but somebody who has slipped away. Somebody who's, who has moved away, perhaps over a, a, a long period of time, and who is now not living for, perhaps not even acknowledging the name of Jesus Christ. Now, when that happens in, in a circumstance like that, what does James say to you and to I? What does he expect us to do when we know about or when we see a fallen believer? Well, look what he says. He He demands action from us, doesn't he? You know, that's abundantly clear. When a fellow Christian, a brother or sister, when they fall away, it is imperative, says James, for the Christian community not to remain dormant, not to remain disinterested by that, But it's crucial that we take action. James wants us to seek out these people and to speak to those people and to pray for the backslidden believer. And if we do that, and if we bring back that person, if we bring them back to God, what does he say here at the end? He says that we save them from dreadful spiritual consequences. Now, do we, do we do that? I'm not sure we do. You know, when you think just now of, of, of people that you know who, you know, perhaps years ago were spiritually enthused, you know, they were spiritually vibrant people. When you think about people connected to this congregation who are perhaps fallen away 
What's, what's, what's our reaction to that? Do we just talk about those people behind their backs? Or we, do we do something more? Do we pray about those people regularly? But even more than that, do we take an active interest in their spiritual restoration? Because that is what James is calling for here. But I want to, I want to close our look at the book of James. And I want to do so with a, just a different slant in that. Because this letter that we've looked at over the last few months is a letter about faith in action. That's what this, this book is all about. It is about how we should live out our faith in Jesus Christ. So, just as we close, I don't want you to consider that believer from years ago that's fallen away. I don't want you to consider the people that you know connected with the congregation that you're in who's fallen away. I want you to consider yourselves consider your current standing before God your own spiritual situation you know as we end this book ask yourself are you living out your faith for Jesus Christ or as James says here have you wandered from the truth well, I see you. If you have, if that sums you up, if you tonight have wandered from the truth, then just consider this book. You know, consider the content of James. What a letter this is, isn't it? It's a marvelous letter. It's a letter that's dealt with trials and it's dealt with greed. You know, it's dealt with wicked speech, it's dealt with favouritism, it's dealt with a lack of patience, it's dealt with suffering, it's dealt with rich and poor, and at every single breath of that letter, James has been concerned with mirroring the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if it is you that is backslidden this evening, I would urge you to come back to him and to bow the knee to Jesus Christ because, you see, ultimately it is he who, what, what does James say when he's ending this, in his last verse? It's he, Christ, who ultimately saves from death. It is he who ultimately covers over a multitude of sins. So are you backslidden? Well, come back and come back to Christ tonight. Let's pray.